You are listening to the MZBC Students Greenhouse Podcast. For more information about Mount Zion Baptist Church, go to mzbc.net slash students or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MZBC Students. Um, so, uh, we're continuing with our series called Collide, right? Um, so we're focusing on stories where p- people collide with God in significant ways and then what kind of came out of that. Um, when, I, when I think about the word collide, the first thing that comes to my mind, I don't know about you, is, is collisions, like in like car collisions. Uh, how many of y'all have ever been in a car wreck? Just put a hand up in the air. Maybe you're like a, I don't care if you're like five years old or whatever, keep, keep them up. So if, you, if you've been in a car wreck, keep them up high and proud. All right. Congratulations. Um, now tell me this with your hand. So, so put your hand down if you are not the driver. If you're not the driver, put your hand down. All right, so now all of us, we're the drivers. Not necessarily our fault, but we were driving the vehicle. So keep, keep them up, put them back up. So you're the driver, and you're in a car wreck. Now, now if, it was, if it was not your fault, not like you say it's not your fault, but like, come on, really? Like, if it was not your fault, put your hand down. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. It is, it is yeah, so, <laughs> I remember yours. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Like, there's, so we, we, we have these moments, you can put your hand down. We have these moments where kind of stuff goes a little haywire, right? And we have these collisions, and those are moments you never, ever forget. I mean, every one of us, especially if it's your fault, well, even if it's not your fault, but especially if it's your fault, you remember everything about that moment. I remember my first, my first uh, car wreck. Um, I was supposed to be going to practice. It was raining just really, really hard outside. I drove this old junky Wrangler, which was squirrely on dry ground. Definitely shouldn't drive it in water. So I, I was going to take the safer vehicle. I took my mom's 1994 Ford Taurus white base model. It was sweet, right? And, uh, and so I drove that to practice. And um, I was going across this, this, this bridge, this, uh, this like overpass over the interstate. And I wasn't speeding, wasn't doing anything crazy, wasn't like trying to, you know, whip a donut in the 94 Taurus white base model, right? So I was just minding my own business going across this thing. There's, there's cars, they're stopping ahead. So I apply the brakes gently as I'm supposed to do. And absolutely nothing happened at all because my dad didn't change tires. My dad's driving a truck with slick tires on it right now. So I didn't really never know what to do with that. So I apply the brakes, nothing happens. I just start ice skating, basically, across this overpass. I've got enough time to think in my head. I remember thinking this, this is dumb. Like, I mean, I've got so much time sliding across this bridge that I've got time to be annoyed about it, okay? I get to the other side of the bridge sliding, like, like I'm a stuntman or something. Um, and there's this huge F-350 maintenance truck with one of those big steel cages on the back like they put cones and junk inside of, right? So there's a huge metal steel cage on the back of this F-350 truck. And, there, and he's, there's, next to him is a gap before a guardrail. And it looks like about the size of my car, right? So I'm, you know, I don't, I don't really like totaling cars on a daily basis. So I decide I'm going to, I'm going to shoot that gap. I'm going to put this 1994 white base model Ford Taurus right between that F-350 maintenance truck and the guardrail. I'm just going to slide right between the two of them, like I'm Batman or something. And it's going to be awesome. The alternative is rear end a truck, which I'm not, not in favor of. So I, I do this. I, I turn the car, I kind of like get it, get it sliding that direction. I do this. I slide right between the F-350 maintenance truck with a huge steel cage in the back and the guardrail. The problem is there's about six inches too few, uh, it's too, six too few of inches. That makes sense? It's about a little bit too narrow. So what's the, what were the result of that was, was that um, I slid right between them and the guardrail kind of just hit and slid all the way down the side of the car. And on the other side of the car, the corner of that steel cage like punctured right in the front fender and then just can opened the entire side of the car. 
like all the way down the entire side of it. it I literally think it would have been a better choice to just rear in the truck. Like that way you won't mess up the bumper and the hood. I jacked up every panel on that car except the roof. Every panel, I hit the roof, I hit the trunk lid somehow. I got every panel on the Ford Taurus 94 base model except the roof. That was impressive. So if you had a wreck, you'd like rear ended something, mine's worse. All right. That's only one wreck. I got like five. Okay. Like we, so we, I mean, we, we have these moments and, and we collide with things and we're, we're, we remember everything about that. I had another wreck. I remember, I remember what kind of juice I was drinking. I remember the cup it was in. Like I remember everything about those moments because in a flash, in a couple of seconds, you're minding your own business and then everything changes. When I had that wreck, I mean, the course of my day changed, the course of my week changed. The way I drive now changes. My insurance definitely changed. Like it, it changes things for you, right? When we collide, stuff changes. I believe, students, that when we collide with God in a real way, like a tr- and truly like encounter God in a real significant way, things change for us. It has to. And if it doesn't change, then something's, something's wrong. We have a story, um, an account that we're going to look at in God's Word. It's in Acts chapter 9, if you want to go there in your Bible. Um, An account of a man named Saul who collided with God. And in a matter of seconds, everything about this guy's life changed. In a matter of seconds, everything, everything, everything for this guy changed. So in Acts chapter 9, that's where we're going to be tonight. If you want to flip over there with me. Um, I'm not going to actually like read all of this. I'm just going to, I want to tell you, I want to tell you what happens in kind of like a story, because um, if you've been in church your whole life, this is one that you are kind of familiar with. And I want you to get to hear it with new, uh, with new ears. So in Acts chapter nine, we, we meet our guy, his name is Saul and Saul is a jerk. Okay. Um, that's just going to be our foundation. This guy, uh, Saul was a Jewish guy and he was kind of a big deal in the, in the kind of the Jewish church. He wasn't, he wasn't just a Jewish guy, a good Jewish guy or whatever. He was, um, he was about as passionate and as zealous as you could possibly be about it. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And, and basically, um, when this guy started hearing about the fact that there was this guy named Jesus, whom he probably never, he'd never met, right? He started hearing about this Jesus and that people were saying that this Jesus was actually the Messiah, the, the Son of God. And not only that, but that they were saying that he had um, died and, and risen from the grave and was like the, the, the Savior of the world. When, when he heard that, he could, not, he could not deal with that. That did not compute for him. And the result of, of that for him was fury. See, because for him, he, he, didn't, he didn't believe that. So what these people were doing, he had these, these Jewish people who used to believe like he did. And were now saying this carpenter's kid was um, the son of the living God, which he couldn't handle, which meant they were lying. Which, if they're defecting from their faith and becoming Christians, which they were called followers of the way, right? They weren't called Christians yet, so it was followers of the way. So these, these Jewish people had abandoned their faith that he shared. They had, they had gone to some other faith that was following a lie about some carpenter's kid. And since it's a lie about God, that's blasphemy. So he believed that all followers of the way, all these Christians were blasphemers. And what he believed about the law, this law that he loved so much, his Jewish law, was, was, in, was that blasphemy was punishable by death. So when he started hearing about these, these traitors, these blasphemers who were lying about God and saying some carpenter's kid was the savior of the world now, he, they had this like fury that welled up inside of him and he decided he was going to do something about it. So what he did, he, he, did, he went to um, the high priest of the Jewish you know, church, whatever, and got permission to basically become a Christian hunter. 
That was like his new job title from normal guy. He like, and now he puts on the, the, like the cape or whatever. And now he's a Christian hunter and he got to go out and literally hunt Christians. That's what he did. That was like his new occupation. He, so he starts doing this. He starts going to different towns and he starts hunting down Christians and he would drag them back to be, uh, be uh, tried in kind of the same way Jesus was tried and basically murdered for their faith. He, got, he actually had the privilege of getting to oversee the first murder of a Christian. So that's a fun thing to put on your resume. He's standing there complicit in it. He's standing there basically playing host uh, to the stoning of Stephen. Standing there holding the jackets, basically, you know, he's, he's the coat rat guy, um, making sure that all the people who are going to murder a guy are comfy. So he's cool. We like him a lot. Um, so, so we have this, this guy, Saul, the murderer of Christians, the hunter of Christians, furious at all Christians. Thinks he's doing the right thing, is passionate about it. So he, he has made it through some towns and, and basically the story of this guy is, is spreading all across the region and there's this fear washing over Christianity, Christi, all of Christianity because of Saul. So he goes to the high priest and he, he says, hey, I, I wanna go to Damascus and see if there's any followers of the way over there. So can you give me like the official documents I need to go over there and, and arrest and drag back to Jerusalem any, any Christians that I find? And the high priest is like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. That sounds, that sounds awesome. Let's kill some folks. And so they, uh, they give him the paperwork and he goes, he gets, he gets the biggest, um, like little, the like biggest posse he can find. He goes and finds like the six or I don't know how many, there doesn't say how many guys there are. He goes and gets some, some big old Jewish dudes to go with him, like in a flying V formation over to Damascus and start busting heads. That's what, that's like, that's where we're at. So they, they, in my head, it's kind of like John Wayne-ish a little bit. Like they all kind of pony up and they're like armed to the teeth. I don't know if they're armed or whatever, but it's how I like to envision it. I like to envision them on horses, even though they're probably not. And, and, just, and so they all saddle up and they're going to go get the bad guys. That's what these guys felt like they were doing. They, they were the protectors of God. And they're going to they're gonna go and they're, they're going to just take care of business and they're, they're going to get these blasphemers out of there. And so they, they get together, they get whatever they're going to take with them, and they start going down the road, taking the journey to Damascus. And they get, they get kind of going, and they're, I can just imagine them um, getting ready, you know, getting psyched up. Like, you know, if you're on the bus going to a football game or something, if you're a football player, you're on the bus, you're going to the game, and man, you've got your beats on because you're LeBron or whatever, and you're getting, you're getting psyched up, you're in the zone, and, and you're, you're getting ready. I can imagine all these guys, they're, they're ready. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go arrest some people. I'm going to drag them back to Jerusalem. I'm going to get some, some good punches in while I'm on. The, I mean, maybe we'll stone a guy. I don't know. It'll be great, right? They're excited. They're ready. They're amped up. I can just feel the arrogance coming off of these guys as they think they are literally protecting God from these crazy Christian people. And I can just imagine them walking down this road to Damascus, kind of got their swagger on a little bit. You know, they've got that cool guy walk thing going and they're, they're just feeling strong. They're feeling like they're the guys above all the other people. They're, they're doing something about it. Until they started getting a little bit closer to Damascus and then something, uh, something terrifying happened. Just out of the clear blue sky. I like to imagine this being just a bright blue day. It's a gentle wind. Like one of, those, one of those days where you just want to get in your Eno or whatever and hang out like a hipster for, you know, three hours. That seems really boring to me just for free Enoing. But maybe it's not. I don't know. I don't have an Eno. You should give me one. I'll try it. So I can just imagine this is a great day if you just like lay out on a picnic or whatever. And, and they're walking. They're getting ready to, to begin entering the city of Damascus. And all of a sudden, I'm out of the middle of nowhere. Clear blue sky. Something nuts happens. Have you, one of these, have you ever had one of these moments where uh, you're just minding your own business and all of a sudden, wham, like something crazy just like nails you out of nowhere? And like, oh my, you know, like, have you ever had, can you think of something like that? Or maybe you're just minding your own business, like 
you know, I don't know, eating a fruit snack or whatever, and one of your friends just like tackles you from, for no reason. Has that ever happened to you? Good. None of you have ever had that experience. Good. All right, so um, there's, there's this time though, when, when something startles you. If you take that to an extreme, there's, there's times where things just come out of nowhere and it just completely freaks you out. I remember being uh, probably six, seven years old. I don't remember how old I was, but I do remember what color pajamas I had on because that's what kind of memory I've got. Um, and so I remember being six, seven years old. I was walking through uh, the, the kind of entryway of my house. We had a, had a glass front door and had a couple of windows on each side of it. So there's a lot of glass on the, the door and the windows. And, um, and I, I was kind of walking, walking along and I was carrying a laundry basket because I'm a good six or seven year old. Had on my white, my white pajamas. I remember them. They were like feet to, like ankles to feet, the, the whole deal. Mama didn't want me to get cold at night, I guess. So I'm carrying my laundry basket. I've got on my white pajamas and I'm, I'm walking across the entryway, right? There's a door on my left, there's a door over here and there's a couch in the living room and everything is over here. You got it? You with me? Can you picture my living room, my parents' house? You're shaking your head. You can't picture it? Dude, you gotta get an imagination. There's a giant glass door here. There's a couch here. Not that hard. Okay, cool. So giant glass door, couch. It's raining outside. Training outside. And as I'm crossing the, um, the, the entryway, I'm kind of walking across the harbor floor to get toward the kitchen where the laundry room is. Somebody dropped a nuclear bomb in my front yard. Or at least that's what I thought, right? All of a sudden, out of, out of nowhere, it's just raining, it's not thundering or anything. The entire room is filled with this crazy, like, white light, and it literally sounds like World War IV happened out in the front yard. And, like, so I'm, 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 I'm here, glass wall, couch. This explosion happens out in the front yard and it just, it like rattles the whole house, flash of light. I was like, hey, I'm not, I'm not real concerned about exactly what that is. If like a helicopter crash, I don't really care. So what I did, I took one good step this way and just like supermaned under the couch. Just like I dove and I slid. My mom had to come like pull me out by the feet. That's how deep I got under the couch, y'all. Like I just, I just took one good step, dove, slid on my belly under the couch. It was smooth. I was a talented six or seven year old. I was very nimble. My mom comes and pulls me out from under the couch because I mean, when, when things happen, like basically lightning hit the, hit the street right in front of our house at the time I'm walking past the thing. It was crazy. Freaked me out. I was like shaking like a leaf or whatever. I don't know if it shakes, right? So Polaroid picture, I don't know. Um, and so, <laughs> I mean, when things like that happen, it just, it, you, remember, you, you can imagine that where that, that adrenaline wells up inside of you and you're just, it takes you a second to calm down, right? So that's what, that's what something far worse than that happens right here. It says that as they're about to, they're getting close to the city of Damascus, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this light, this light flashes around Saul. And it, it doesn't say that there's a sound, but I, it sounds way cooler if there's a sound. I don't, I don't think there's like, like a like fairy light or something, right? So in my head, it's, it's kind of like that experience, six or seven years old, where wham, like there's this huge light, it's blinding, it's disorienting, it's full crazy, and it's just around Saul. He's just like enveloped in this kind of moment of chaos here. It's so bright, it's so, uh, it's, it, the Bible says it's blinding. And, it's, and it doesn't, it's not a flash, it's constant. So what, all of a sudden, Saul, he's, he's in this moment feeling super proud of himself, super hardcore. He's going to go defend God and t- kick out the bad guys or whatever. The next second, he's like trembling on the ground, fearing for his life because something is happening. And in, in, in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the sound, in the middle of this crazy blinding light all around him, a voice speaks. I'm okay with light flashing and thunder and whatever. I can maybe like UFO explain that or something. But then when voices start speaking, 
I don't really know what I would do with that. But what Saul does is basically dive on the ground and get in the fetal position. That's a fair plan, right? That's, most of us would probably do that. He dives on the ground. He's like tucked for you know, protection or whatever. And then a voice speaks over the cries of fear, over his whimpering, over the six giant Jewish dudes hiding in the bushes. A voice speaks over all of that. And this is what it says. Saul, why do you persecute me? So it's not just a general voice. It's not just, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a kind of just, I don't know, like God is just announcing something or whatever. It's directed directly at him. This voice speaks that directed directly at him and it just asks a question. It's five words. Why do you persecute me? That's it. Jesus, in this moment, this is, this is basically Jesus speaking. And he, Jesus chooses this moment to collide with Saul. He chose Saul to collide with. He called him by name. This wasn't accidental. He didn't step on like a Jesus landmine on the side of the road and whoever happened to have been coming by right then was gonna get an encounter with Jesus. Jesus chose this moment for this guy and chose to collide with him in a, very, in a spectacular, blinding, like life-changing kind of moment. I would, I would love to have Jesus audibly speak to me. That would make things a lot easier for me. Then faith doesn't have to be faith anymore if, if like I can have, a, have like an audible verbal conversation with Jesus. Most of us would maybe not have the terrifying part of this. Most of us would like to have this moment where Jesus decides that he's going to tangibly, physically collide with us. Most of us would like that to be us. Jesus chooses the worst possible guy there is to collide with. He chose the Christian hunter. He chose the guy that was like playing host to the murder of the first Christian. Not the, well, the first murder of a Christian. He chose the worst possible guy to present himself to. When, I'm, when, I'm, when I read that, when I'm reminded of that, when, I'm, when I take away from that choice on Jesus' part, is that no matter, no matter how bad things have been for you, no matter what your background is, no matter how bad you've been, I don't think you're as bad as, Paul, as Saul was. So if, if, if you come into these, this, these times of worship and, and we come in and we start talking about how Jesus wants to have a relationship with you, that he, he loves you perfectly, and then the entire time in the back of your head, think, you're thinking, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good enough for this. You don't, know, you don't know where I've come from. You don't know stuff I did two years ago. You don't know stuff I did last weekend. You don't know. And we come and so say, a lot of us, I mean, a lot of us come kind of hesitant, resistant to, to, to God because we don't feel like we're good enough. And then we hear stories like this where Jesus intentionally chooses to collide with the worst possible person he could collide with. If you came in here today thinking that you're not good enough, that what you've done is too bad, that, that God doesn't want to have anything to do with somebody as messed up as you, um, I, I need you to hear from the authority of God's word that you're, you're wrong. God chooses um, to present himself. God chooses to enter into a relationship with. God chooses to love every single one of us the exact same way, no matter what we've done, no matter how bad things have been. And if you don't feel like you're good enough, then, well, you're right, you're not. But he still wants you. So Saul's walking down this road. He's got his posse. This blinding light hits, throws him to the ground. He's terrified and it speaks to him um, and says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now remember, Saul doesn't believe that Jesus is the son of God. Saul doesn't know who's talking. Jesus doesn't introduce himself. He just like, it's me, I'm God. I can speak from light flashes. I can do whatever I want, right? And so he doesn't introduce himself. He just says, hey, why, why do you persecute me? 
And so Saul comes back with an obvious question. He says, uh, who are you? I don't think he said it like that. I, I, I imagine it more being like, what is going on? Like, what is happening? Who are you? Who am I persecuting? I don't, what, what is happening? That, that's probably more accurate, probably. So this voice speaks, says, why do you persecute me? He's flipping out. Like, I don't, who am I? I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know. I, I didn't intend to persecute you. I don't know who you are. Who are you? And this is all the voice says. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. That's it. He asks a simple question. Why do you persecute me? And then he's like, oh, but I'm sorry. I've, I just assumed you would know it was me. Um, this is Jesus, the guy you're killing all my followers here, bro. Like, um, what are you doing? I love that. I, I like to imagine what Jesus's tone was when he said that. He said any of that. So when he, when he posed the question, why do you persecute me? Or when he said, I'm Jesus, right? Did the ground shake when he said, I'm Jesus? Did he, did he use dad voice? You know what dad voice is? Dad, I, have, I have dad voice now. Um, we take a class on it right after you do like the birthing class. You go to dad voice class. All dads have it. Um, like when I, when I talk to Jack and, you know, he's like banging a stick against the wall or something. And it's really annoying. I'm like, and he does that constantly. Uh, I'm like, hey, uh, hey, hey, buddy, I, I, need you, I need you to quit. But I need you to quit banging a stick in the wall. Okay? Thank you. Okay, Daddy. Move on. When Jack's about to walk into, a, into the street in front of a car, which also happens all the time, um, I don't say, hey, buddy, buddy, there's a car. Hey, stop. Stop, 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 stop. There's a car. No, this is what it sounds like. Jack, stop. That's worse, right? When I do that, when I dad voice him, he, um, he literally like falls on the ground and weeps. <laughs> and I feel awesome. <laughs> right? When you boom like that, like they just, they just like puts fear into your heart, right? All of our dads have probably done that to us at one point or another. Somebody's dad voiced you as a coach or somebody. So was it that? When, when Jesus spoke out of, the, out of this flash and he said, hey, Saul, why do you persecute me? Did he dad voice him? Maybe. I th- I'm sure there was strength in the voice. When he said, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus. I'm sure there was this thunderous strength to that, but, but I, I, I know that Jesus is a whole lot more than angry. And what we read about our Savior, about Christ, is that he is not an angry God, that he is a hopeful God. So yeah, so I imagine the tone of Jesus when he says these things to Saul would be strong, true. And I'm sure there's a bit of sadness in there. But I also know there'd be a bit of hope. See, here's, here's the truth out of, out of the way Jesus approaches us. It's, it's simply this, that Jesus wants to move in your future despite your past. He is always hopeful for our future. Despite, despite Saul's past, Jesus wants to move in his future. He's not concerned with, with like going back and rehashing all of this. He wants to take Saul, take us, and move us forward into a relationship with him. So he just comes and says, hey, why are you you doing this? And I also love this. I love the fact that Jesus questioned Saul about the one thing, the main thing, the core thing that was standing between them. And when he said, why do you persecute me? Jesus, in five words, got to the heart of the matter. He didn't say, hey, Saul, why don't don't you believe in me? Like, why, why don't why haven't you been listening to what people have been saying about me? He didn't ask him like 15 questions. He just got to the heart of it, to the main thing that was dividing Saul and Christ. He said, why are you, why are you persecuting me? 
He got to the heart of the matter in five words. When I think about that, when I think about how Jesus did that, I start thinking about myself and about you guys and just wondering um, if, if Jesus was to speak in your heart and life just audibly inside your head or something, which isn't going to happen, but if he were to, like sitting right there where you are tonight, if Jesus was to speak into your heart and, and ask a question, if he was going to get to the heart of the thing that's separating the two of you, that's separating you from Jesus, the thing that's standing between you, and he got to the heart of it in one question, what would he ask you? What would he ask? Like, I, want you to like, I want you to actually think about this. We're going to revisit it. You need to have an answer in your head, and it probably popped up almost immediately. If he was going to get to the heart of the thing that's separating the two of you, that's separating you from Jesus, he was going to ask you, why are you doing that? What would he ask you? Maybe you came in here tonight and, and um, you're just, I mean, you, you come to Greenhouse, you come to stuff and bubble soccer or whatever because it's fun and there's, you get to hang out with people and, and there's a band and stuff. Uh, maybe that's why you're here. But when we start talking about you having a relationship with Jesus, there's, there's some resistance there. Like you just kind of want to shut that part down. I'm just here to hang out with my friends. Don't mess with me about like what's going on in my heart. I don't want to talk about my heart. That's weird. Just back off. There's this resistance. Maybe, maybe for you, Jesus would speak into your heart and life and he would just say, hey, why? Why are you so resistant to me? Maybe some of you have been burned by something in the past and you've blamed God for it and you're just mad at him. So anytime we start talking about God, we start talking about Jesus, you, um, you just get mad. Maybe the question that he would ask you, just, why are you so angry with me? Why are you so angry with me all the time? Maybe you've been a Christian a long, long time and, and you haven't grown at all as a believer and, and you know why. It's just because you're not doing anything. You're not trying. You're just being lazy. So maybe he would ask you that. Maybe he'd ask you, why are you so lazy? That would burn. I don't know what he would ask you, but I do know that whatever it is would sting. Because I know for all of us, and myself included, there's things that stand between us and Christ. Whether you're a Christian or not, there's something standing between you. And if Jesus was to speak into your life and point that thing out in the form of a question, what would he ask you? Why are you, what would he say to you? Jesus continues just with one more sentence. Doesn't, go, doesn't preach a sermon, doesn't like say much at all. He just says, now get up. And go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The light dissipates, the voice is gone, and the clear blue sky's back. Except Saul's in the fetal position on the ground. The giant Jewish dudes are off in the bushes, shaken and are scared. And actually, it says it says that uh, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless or, or dumbfounded. They're just standing there like. I don't know what just happened. That was nuts. It says that they, that they, they, they saw the light, but they, they heard the voice, but they didn't see anybody. They're just terrified. Saul's laying there on the ground, not knowing what just happened to him. He's, he's, I can just imagine he's got his eyes clenched shut tight. He's, just, he's like balled up, like hoping that God doesn't just, you know, God stomp him right there into the ground or something and just be done with him. And so I can, I can imagine... As it says that Saul began to try to stand up and he, he, and he puts his hand on his ground and he starts pressing up from the, from the dirt in the middle of the road, right? And he, and he goes to open his eyes. And that calm he was starting to kind of rest in, you know, the adrenaline levels start to go back down, wells right back up a big again because when Saul tried to open his eyes, nothing happened. 
That didn't work. He was blind. So when he goes to open his eyes, he goes to stand up. He's now blind and doesn't know why. So I'm sure like he, I mean, I'm sure he would do the same thing you would do. If, if you all of a sudden randomly were blind, you'd probably start wiping at your eyes, trying to figure out if you can see at all and looking up at the sky and seeing if there's any light. What's, what's happening to me? What is, is this permanent? Like, did my brain like spaz out or something? What, what's, why can I not see? I, I would freak out. So he's just going from having this light flash all around him to having uh, this, this voice from heaven um, speak to him. He's just found out that that Jesus that he's been killing people for believing in, like talks to people from flashes of light in the middle of the street and on the way to Damascus, which all of a sudden his entire way of life has been thrashed. And now he's blind. He's having a bad day. So he, goes, he tries to get to his feet. He's trying to figure out why he's blind. And finally the six dumb guys or whatever from the bushes, they come out and they help him and they end up having to guide him the same way you had to guide your friend around. Um, they ended up guiding him into Damascus and they found him a place to stay. And it says for three days, he stayed there. He didn't eat or drink anything. He just had some, he had some work to do. <laughs> There's some, some, uh, some processing that he had to go through having encountered the living God um, on the road to Damascus. I don't, I don't really imagine him sitting in a lazy boy uh, thinking that through or even getting in a bed. I just, I just imagine in my head, this isn't biblical, this is just me. I just imagine Saul finding a space, maybe on the ground, between maybe his bed and a table, somewhere kind of safe where you can maybe hear people come to the room because he's blind and that's new, and just where he can just sit and think. It says for three days he didn't eat or drink anything. He's just processing what God had done. What do you think he thought about? Think about this. He was an enemy combatant of the God of the universe. He had murdered, <laughs> he had murdered people for believing in, the, in Jesus, whom he now has to believe in because he's met him. Think about the shame and the heartache at that. That'd be awful. Think about the guilt. Think about, think about this. His entire way of life is now meaningless and wrong. Everything that he had placed his trust in didn't matter anymore. He was a Christian hunter and he just met Christ, so he can't really be a Christian hunter anymore. What would people think? What's he supposed to do now? What do are, what are these Christians do? I didn't really stop to ask them what they do because I'm just too busy getting them arrested. So what do I do now? Because for three days he had to process if, if this happened to you, man, if, if, if Jesus audibly spoke to you and asked you that question that you had in your head a second ago, asked you about that one thing that's separating you from Jesus, and he called you out on that one thing, he asked you that one question, um, and you collided with him like that, I think you would need some time to sit there and think and to process, to, to work through the ramifications of this. Because there are ramifications. If you collide with Jesus, if you meet the living God, if you, if you come to a point where you know that you know that you know that he is not a myth, that he is not a fairy tale, that he's not some made up thing, that you've, you've encountered him in a real way. It's not about facts and figures and archeological digs anymore because you have, in, you have met him, you have experienced him. And if you know that you know that you know that he is there and he is real, then that has some ramifications for the way you live your life. That changes some stuff. Same way it did for Saul. So if he called you out on the one thing that's separating you and him, I think you would have some things to think about. I think you'd have some, um, I think you'd have some processing to do about the way you've been living your life and the changes that need to take place. So I, I would just ask you this, my final question as I close. If Jesus is actually real, 
which most of us in the room have said that we've trusted with everything we've got, if he is actually real, what, what needs to change in your life? If he was standing before you, what, would, what, would, what in your life would look ridiculous? If you came in without anger toward God and he's standing there telling you, I love you, I love you, I died on the cross for you, I've given everything for you, your anger would look ridiculous. If you understood the, the way that he, he loves and, and has, has invited you into to the complete goodness and abundance of life, your, your anger towards him wouldn't make a lot of sense. Your resistance toward him wouldn't make a lot of sense. Your laziness wouldn't make any sense at all. What would need to change? If he's real, what has to change in your life? I'm over time, so, so band, we're going to have to drop our song. I'm sorry, I love you. Um, um, my fault. I'll give you all hugs later. Sorry. Um, so, but I, I do want to pray for you. And then you got some stuff you need to go talk about in your small groups. So um, I, I just want to remind you those three, those, those questions. What would he ask you? What would he ask you? And if, if he's real, what has to change? When we collide with Jesus, something has to change. Otherwise, um, I'm not really sure we've actually met him. Let me pray for you. Um, God, I pray that uh, we'll be people that, um, that are honest with ourselves about what stands between us and you. And God, that's, that's not a really exciting thing to think about or be honest with you about. So I pray that even, even just now, um, that students would have, a, have the boldness and the confidence in you to, uh, to tell you where we failed to tell you what's standing between us and you. And God, um, I pray that you would continue to draw us, that you'd continue um, to collide with us, and that in that we would be people who would be bold enough to make the changes necessary. Be with us here in our time of small groups. God, help us to be open and honest um, and to speak truth to one another. I hope that make, make that time effective. It's in your sons, I pray. Amen. All right, head to your small groups.